Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It was Sunday, June 8, 1997, and just under 8,000 spectators were at Bruce Stadium for the Canberra Raiders' first game of the World Club Challenge, taking on the might of the newly christened Halifax Blue Sox. With six games of the series in the books, English clubs had managed respectable scorelines and given Super League administrators the hope that the tournament's credibility could be salvaged. At full time, a Raiders team missing Laurie Daly and Brett Mullins walked off the field after a 70-6 victory. It was the first time an English club would concede 50 points in the series, but by no means the last. This is part two of the World Club Challenge, the 36th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Mate, I'm unreal. How are you going? Yeah, likewise. I'm on cloud nine with all the positive reviews we've had coming in about part one of our World Club Challenge chapter. Mixed reviews about my Yorkshire accent, which I'm, <laughs> I'm a bit disappointed on, but I'll, I'll keep working on it. Well, our number one um, Northern Englander, Neil Stossel, said you were good, so I'll take his word for it. Well, then he said, he later clarified by saying it was the best English accent he'd heard since uh, Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins. So (laughs) I I don't know how sincere his praise was. I'll keep working on that. But as I said, really thrilled that everyone responded so well to part one. And we've got two more parts. And similar to any time we get to quote Matthew Ridge in uh, an extended capacity in an episode, I think this chapter writes itself. It it was a a very easy one to put together based on all the ludicrous quotes and on-field strangeness that ensued over this tournament. It's the genius chapter of the series. (laughs) Best Reggie quote ever. (laughs) So we'll get into it. In this part of the chapter, we're actually going to be talking about the on-field action. And it started with a match between the Brisbane Broncos and their English counterparts, the London Broncos. It was a a match against the $6 million of the Brisbane player salaries versus 1.74 for London. So it had every chance of being a real mismatch, yet London managed to keep it competitive. And this gave Super League the thought that maybe this was going to work out after all. I like Steve Mascord's comment on that first match. If League's $6 million gamble on a trans-hemisphere club competition didn't exactly return a dividend in the first game, London's performance kept the roulette wheel spinning. I mean, I was impressed by the round one scorelines when I was going through the preparation for this because I don't remember it being that sort of reasonable. Yeah, so I'll read out the the scores of those first six games. So the opening weekend, you had that 42-22 win to Brisbane at ANZ Stadium. Across the world... Uh, St. Helens lost to Auckland 42-14. The Cowboys beat Leeds 42-20 at home in Townsville. In Paris, the Hunter Mariners beat Paris 28-12. The Western Reds beat Castleford in England 24-16. And also in England, Cronulla beat Warrington 40-12. So it's not like they were classic tight matches, but... Given everything we've heard about the World Club Challenge and all the laughs we've had already in this chapter, if you knew nothing about the series and you saw that list of scorelines, you'd be thinking, oh, well, well, that's not terrible. So those first six games were close. Then we get to the Sunday, Canberra beat Halifax 70-6. to And this was, in many ways, the damn wall breaking, although we will see a reversion by the end of the weekend. It was the start of a sense that this could go really wrong really quickly. Well, I mean, 
it's bad. There's no sugarcoating it, but they only just come up from the second division and the NRL can have a 60 or 70 point loss every now and then too. So, I mean. Yeah. Uh, what the NRL doesn't typically have is a team like Halifax who lost their six games with an average margin of defeat of 47.33 points. Yeah, it's just insane thinking they're going to compete, but I don't think it's that crazy. If it was like 160 nil, like New Zealand versus Japan and the Ruby Union, I'd be like, okay. Yeah. So total for and against for Halifax, 56 points for 340 <laughs> against. <laughs> That's a rough for and against. <laughs> they drew the short straw in being the sixth team in that pool A. So they were forced to play against all the top Australian teams, which again goes back to the sensible idea that maybe four on four could have been a better structure for the tournament. It's downright recklessness from Morris Lindsay to not want them to feel left out in inverted commas. Yeah. If you're just sneaking into the English Super League for quality, what hope do you have? What hope do you have? I like that sentiment in terms of the optimism of the Halifax management who brought over multiple boxes of Halifax jerseys to sell <laughs> at games. <laughs> I like this by Sherlock in the Rugby League Week. What a marketing ploy. The way the World Club Challenge has been going, I'm sure Aussie fans will be positively falling over themselves to snap up the jerseys. <laughs> well, all right. I actually think it's not a bad idea to have a couple in the suitcase because like, the cool jerseys are out of the ordinary, right? You know what I mean? I remember Michael Hagen and his Halifax jerseys to look cool. But, I mean, um, people like to back a winner, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny at the time, but I would kill to have a 1997 Halifax <laughs> jersey now. Yeah. Maybe the marketing team for Halifax were um, ahead of their time with the Brill, Brill Cream and Blazers. Well, I'm sure there are plenty of those jerseys still floating about somewhere on the internet or in someone's basement, but I don't think many were sold at the ground. <laughs> but as you mentioned, Halifax were always going to be up against it. And a lot of the hopes in the tournament were placed in these big clubs, the clubs that had previously taken on Australian teams in the World Club Challenge, the clubs that Australian viewers who may not watch a lot of English football could at least recognise. And the biggest name was, of course, Wigan. We don't need to reel off the successes of Wigan in the 80s and 90s. They were the main thing I knew about English rugby league. They were the glamour club. They had all the best players. And at that stage, they were viewed as a legitimate rival to the best Australian clubs. So a lot of hope placed in Wigan, and early on it seemed that they were going to justify that hope by recording a win over Canterbury at Belmore Oval, which was the last game of the first weekend. They beat Canterbury 22-18. to 18. Well, well, this brings me back to my uh, lasting memory of that time because you want to talk about bad judges. So I had acquired a betting account at the age of 16 at Sports Odds Bookmakers in like Alice Springs or some sort of center bet competitor, yeah. right? And I had acquired that in my father's name without his knowing. So I was sports gambling, um, setting myself up for a life of misery. And um, I had a multi for all eight games. And I think I had about six Super League teams for the winners in that, um, <laughs> in that multi. <laughs> <laughs> I had Wigan, so... I was, <laughs> I was expecting them to be really competitive and get up. So, uh, Oh, man, if there was ever a sign really? of the, the, you know, the trouble that was ahead of you, it was right there. Just put a 1,000 on the Washington Generals for me too, please. <laughs> <laughs> so a great result uh, first up for Wigan. It's a result that may have been telegraphed with some of the comments and the attitudes of the Canterbury players. So this was... Simon Gilley's assessment of Wigan ahead of the game. Wigan will be in a bit of a holiday mood after being in Sydney a week, but hopefully that might lead to some good footy with good tries scored. So I don't think Gillies was taking the tournament too seriously or much studying of the opposition was being done at Canterbury when he was asked about the prospect of facing his old teammate Gary Connolly, who'd played at Canterbury in 1993. Gillies replied, is he coming? That's how much I know about it. 
Is it just rugby league where this attitude where players can confidently brag about not caring about watching rugby league or being interested in it? I can't imagine an NBA player going like, oh, who am I playing? I don't know, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it seems like rugby league is the only sport I hear it in. Yeah, and especially these days when rugby league players go out of their way to say how much they prefer the NFL or the NBA or, or anything else. <laughs> At least have a look down the team sheet and see who you're playing this weekend, you know what? And I think that attitude is across the board with how Canterbury approached the World Club Challenge. Gillies went on to say that they were going to use it as a chance to fix some of their defensive issues, <laughs> which given their poor defence for the year, as we talked about in our Super League domestic season recap, didn't really work out. But regardless of how seriously Canterbury were taking it, it was a great morale booster for not only Wigan, but for Super League organisers who thought maybe there was a chance that they could turn it around and get some good results, at least from the top sides. And this first up win by Wigan meant there was genuine buzz for their second match, which was taking on the Brisbane Broncos at ANZ Stadium. So something that Super League could genuinely say about their tournament was that they had the reigning world champions in Wigan. So Wigan had beaten Brisbane in Brisbane in 1994, which was, I think, the problem to this day with the World Club Challenge is it's always early in a preseason or late in a postseason. Yeah. There's always the, you know, how seriously is either team taking it? There's always the, you know, an Australian team goes over to England and it's, oh, well, they're just on holiday or they didn't have time to adjust. But this was Wigan finishing their season coming over to Australia in the middle of the Broncos season and winning a legitimate win. Wayne Bennett said that they were fantastic that night. They played a terrific brand of open attacking football. Their defense was outstanding. I think one of the big problems in Achilles heel in a sporting competition is when there's opportunity to not take games seriously. Mm. You want a sporting competition where every game is serious. It defies logic to me that you're a professional athlete and you don't take things seriously. Every episode, you know, it's hard to get up for that game. It's like, well, why is it hard? Yeah, you're right. And for me, it's more the perception that that could happen is what undermines the credibility of a tournament. You know, think about a recent World Club Challenge match with St. Helens taking on Penrith. And as soon as St. Helens won, all you heard was, oh, yeah, you know, whatever. Penrith weren't taking it seriously. So it's just another preseason game, really. Like, Crazy. How seriously Penrith took it, I don't know. But the fact that you can use that as an excuse is a problem for the credibility of your tournament. Well, we already heard last episode, that, you know, it was retroactively announced that it was Mickey Mouse. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't want the Disney Corporation anywhere near <laughs> your tournament. So there was a lot riding on this game in Brisbane. And at halftime, it seemed like maybe it was going to be close. Brisbane were leading 10-0 and were lucky to be that far ahead. Uh, but fitness and skill overcame Wigan in the second half, and it was a 34-0 victory. But the fact that this could be talked about as it was better than it looked, this is a sentiment that we'll hear again and again from Super League apologists over <laughs> the course of this spin. series. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Beyond the result, probably the lasting legacy of this match, and maybe the tournament as a whole, was the fight between Gordon Tallis and Terry O'Connor. Memorable. This is the one World Club Challenge highlight that has been in any kind of regular rotation <laughs> highlight, in, in, yeah. the, in the 25 years since it took place. It was pretty full on. In terms of like punch to second, it was a fairly big ratio. Well, to me, it's amazing. Like Terry O'Connor is a 300-plus game hard nut from the north of England, hard bloke, and then Talos just goes, no, nah, ragdoll. Yeah, and it was a fairly mild push on O'Connor in a tackle that launched it. So I don't know if Talos had it in his head from the start of the game that I'm going to get that big angry bloke there as an intimidation factor. But regardless, it was a fairly full-on brawl. Both players sent to the sin bin. Terry O'Connor on the way to the Simbin told Talos that he'd get square with him back in Wigan. <laughs> there are a lot of arguments that it should have been a straight send-off for Talos and some talk in the aftermath about how dangerous this kind of stuff was and how it's got to come out of the game. 
Seriously, how casually do we take um, wanton violence? Yeah. Objectively, it's disgusting just to have a guy punching another guy's yeah. head. Yeah. And Talos, for his part, in the aftermath, felt some shame about it. His quote was that he'd been to Ipswich Grammar to give a clinic to some school kids and said, all the kids wanted to talk about was the fight. I was so embarrassed. Oh, yeah. So it really calmed him down when he met Ben Ross then, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I like this from Peter Jackson. Would that incident have created the same amount of drama had Gordon Tallis missed with some of those hundred punches he threw? I doubt it. He was basically in the bad books because he knows how to throw them and the other bloke didn't. <laughs> this is my point, though. Are we um, cage fighters or sportsmen? Like- yeah. And I think Jackson's comment shows you the mentality in rugby league at the time. And as a teenager watching, and I never saw anything wrong with fights in league matches, even though uh, I wasn't a fighter in real life and I'd be, you know, terrified if anything like that was happening to me. So there was a disconnect for fans at that era, which I think is definitely not there anymore. Well, Harrigan and Bella is like one of the great Newcastle memories. (laughs) (laughs) So beyond the fight, it was a game that, left Wigan's credibility and the tournament's credibility hanging on by a thread. That thread was snipped with Wigan's third match in Australia where Canberra beat them 56-22 to and they were leading 42-6 to at halftime. It's inevitable that they can get up for the first round, keep it close-ish, yeah. but by round three, it's the wear and tear of the uh, road trips and the NRL intensity is going to wear you down. Yeah, exactly. And I think the lopsided results had by at that point worn down the public. So this was a match that was mooted as being moved to the Sydney Football Stadium to cater for all the fans who would be (laughs) flooding to to get to this marquee fixture. In the end, Wigan get smashed and they can't even draw 10,000 at Bruce. Well, they can't draw um, flies down there anyway, generally. Yeah. So at this point, we're going to do... Something that we're going to do uh, in a few instances over the next two parts of this chapter, which is to provide some context about how the clubs in England were going. And so it might seem obvious that it would be Wigan that would be the ones flying the flag for English football, getting wins and generating a bit of buzz. This belies the fact that back home they were really struggling on and off the field and their era of dominance had come to an end. So there were significant money problems with Wigan at the time. They were faced with a huge wage bill, declining revenue, which saw them have to sell off some of their marquee talents. So Martin Afire and Sean Edwards both went to London. It's a real different world, that transfer world, isn't it? Making players into assets yeah. to buy low or sell high or whatever. Yeah. You can get yourself into a real hole when you're trying to buy a comp over there. And that was part of the problem. They missed the World Club Challenge final the previous year for the first time in however many years. And they'd been so used to winning it that it was like they had it baked into their finances, just a a standing line (laughs) in the budget. We'll get that money from the Challenge Cup. Wigan had a rugby league ground that they owned and Central Park, one of the most famous and historic rugby league grounds in the world that they could at this point in time see as an asset. So it was sold to Tesco's and as a result, you can no longer watch rugby league at Central Park, but you can get some (laughs) (laughs) great discounts, I'm sure. Selling your home ground, I mean, you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel. (laughs) Yeah, and it seems like when it's your asset, it's your ground that you own. I'm not well-versed enough with Wigan's finances and what was going on at the time to know if they could have worked a way around it. But it just seems, I think they got £12 million for the sale. It just seems that goes in a few years and then that's it. There's nothing left. Yeah, that's right. No more ground either. So it was a very unpopular move, which ultimately saw the end of their chairman, Jack Robinson, who was courting controversy all over the place at this period in time. There was a, a challenge to him and Tom Rathbone, one of the directors, Rathbone and Jack Robinson, along with Morris Lindsay, were key to Wigan's revival in the early 80s. So they were long-standing Wiganers who had done a lot for the club. But sell your historic ground to Tesco's and you're <laughs> going to be hearing it from your fans. So 
There was a vote which it was alleged that there were dead shareholders who were uh, (laughs) casting votes. Yet another um, comparison between rugby league and politics. Yeah. Uh, Robinson had actually got in trouble a year earlier because uh, this this was in Richard Della Riviere's book, Rugby League Critical History, which was a great source for this chapter, that there was an incident the year before where Wigan players had gone on holiday and there was some bad behaviour over alcohol. And it was reported in... <laughs> the Wigan observed that Neil Cowie was one of these players. And at this stage, Jack Robinson saw an opportunity because he knew that Cowie was on a different holiday and he came up with a little scheme to say that Leeds had actually made an offer to Cowie that they then rescinded because of the story in the Wigan Observer. He took that to Leeds with the idea that they would sue the paper and split the proceeds. Jesus Christ. Leeds denied the offer. Robinson admitted making the offer. He came up on criminal charges but was somehow found not guilty. (laughs) But that in combination with the Tesco sale meant the end of Jack Robinson at Wigan. I've got to say I did a little bit of research on Robinson. He died a couple of years ago now reading a lot of obituaries and it seems he was still like very much well-loved in Wigan and it was recognised how much he did for the club. So... Had a little bit of the arco to him in terms of affability masking some cunning, but still a beloved figure in Wigan, it seems. We need to delve deeper into this master criminal plan, (laughs) (laughs) this this white-collar genius crime. It's not that far removed from jumping in front of a car to try to claim some insurance (laughs) in terms of sophistication. (laughs) So... Wigan had off-field troubles. On the field, they were a declining force. So they missed out on the Challenge Cup. By the start of the year, they were mid-table and had no realistic chance of winning the league. And those results would get worse. But it should be mentioned that unlike other clubs who experienced periods of success, Wigan were able to withstand this rough patch. And maybe it was the Tesco sale that gave them the ability to recover pretty quickly. So maybe we are being too harsh about that because they were premiers again as soon as 1998 after all this doom and gloom about how they were going on field. And in the Super League era, they've only finished outside the top four four times. Is that Tesco's related or Junior Pathways related? Yeah, they had a significant advantage among other clubs in a number of ways, but I can only assume that that sale gave them the capital to you know, rebuild their playing stock after they'd had this fire sale of a fire in Edwards. They were leasing players to rugby union clubs to try to make some money. So, <laughs> But you have a period of success like they had, incredible run, 10 years, 12 years, whatever it was. Yeah. Players are going to get old. I mean, it happens. Yeah, yeah, it does. And in addition to still being able to get the best English talent to come to Wigan, right around the time of the Tesco sale, suddenly there's a glut of NRL players available and Wigan certainly picked up some of the best of those in the late 90s and early 2000s. And they also got Matthew Johns. Yeah. (laughs) But maybe the counterpoint to Wigan is Bradford, who in that first weekend of matches, Bradford were the other shining light. They'd narrowly lost to Penrith, 20-16, to And at that point, they were runaway leaders in the English competition. So they were in the midst of bull mania. So they changed from Bradford Northern to the Bradford Bulls at the start of the Super League era. They built off the buzz of the Chicago Bulls with a new logo. and (laughs) still cracks me up. You can barely tell the towns apart, Chicago and Bradford. (laughs) And a huge bus which took them up and down the M62, the Bullmobile. And they were getting huge crowds. So since the introduction of the two divisions of the top tier of English football, they averaged 15,000 a week for crowds. That was the best in that era. So Wigan in 93-94 were uh, just under 15,000. So Bradford at this time were riding an incredible wave. And this made me a bit sad considering what came after. So Dave Hadfield talking about Bullmania and the Bradford experience said, the one club without obvious money worries at the moment is Bradford, who continue to ride a remarkable wave of enthusiasm. 
sadly, that wave and that money did not continue. And anyone who knows anything about English football knows that it's been a very rocky couple of decades for Bradford who haven't been in the top flight for some time. And, you know, a new entity was formed. And it's just sad to see this amount of buzz not being sustainable. To me, it's the natural cycle of a rugby league club. When you're riding high, it's countdown to bankruptcy, basically. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So they were doing it with an Australian connection, with Brian Smith starting it and him being replaced as coach by Matthew Elliott. And then some of their cult players, Danny Peacock and Graham Bradley, were elevated to hero status in Bradford. Really happy uh, for Graham Bradley about that, one of my favourite dragons of the early 90s. So cool, yeah. So they were just running roughshed over their competition domestically. They were five points clear in May, eight points in July, and had the best ever start to an English season. They ended up winning their first 20 games of the season before losing their last two to crush the prospect of an undefeated season. That's a shame, isn't it? So easy league winners who were on the slide by the end of the season. So lost their last two matches. And then in the Premiership Trophy, which was a weird precursor to the semi-final series that would take place in Super League from the next year on, they lost their only match in that, were knocked out, and that was basically it for the end of their season. So at this stage, a lot of hope was being placed in Bradford in terms of the World Club Challenge. That first game gave fans some hope. They actually lost to Auckland by the same scoreline a week later. So Auckland beat them 20-16. to 16. This was tarnished by the fact that Auckland had Sid Arrow sent off just before halftime and still managed to win, being a man down for the entire second half. And that was about as good as it got for Bradford in the World Club Challenge. They were well beaten by Cronulla, losing 30-10. to 10, But it was in that second round, which we'll cover in our next part, that the wheels really fell off. But in all the Bradford hype, what we were hearing in Australia was a lot about Robbie Paul. In Super League magazine in particular, he was really being boosted as the player to watch from England. They reported that Barry Maranta called him the best player in the world. Super League magazine said Australian clubs would be well advised to do their homework early on the EuroLeague club's inspirational halfback and captain, Robbie Paul. When the games actually came around, he was carrying an injury, which Super League magazine was uh, big on shouting down at every chance that don't judge him on this, he's actually injured. And in that magazine, they wrote, those getting a look at him for the first time via Fox Sports back here in Australia probably wondered what all the fuss was about. The kid looks pretty ordinary to them. Where do you stand on um, Robbie Paul? I kind of stand on that line. It's hard to know what the fuss is about when we see him play for New Zealand every year or you know every couple of years. I was never blown away by his play. I kept on being told how good he was and we just never got to see it. And we just had this debacle of a tournament. So how can you judge his worth based on his performances in England? It's an age-old um, issue for us over here because I remember Andy Farrell in the same boat and Henry and Robbie Paul. So you watch guys like um, Robinson and guys like Paul Sculthorpe even who just look like real classy footballers and that they had the goods when you saw them. And then yeah. I never saw Andy Farrell play a decent game in my life. No. And I know he carved up in England. Yeah. And same with Robbie Paul. Then also you've got to factor in the fact they're playing Australia in test matches on the back foot and then they're coming over here in the World Club Challenge and they're on the back foot. So can you judge them? It's a, it's a hard thing. And there is a degree of Australian arrogance about that, that if you can't cut it in the NRL, if you can't dominate against us in internationals, then we're not going to rate you. But, I mean, it's like us going to America in the 90s and saying, oh, yeah, Jordan's all right, but wait till Phil Smith plays you. You know it. I'm a Phil Smith booster, by the way. Couldn't knock down a three. <laughs> a real old school pass first point guard. I don't want any Phil Smith bashing on this podcast. I think Jordan had him slightly covered, though. <laughs> yeah. But we had like Schofield and then the Fire and guys and Ellery that really shone versus Australia. Yeah. But it's a different era where if you're on the back foot the whole time, the guys with the best forward pack are going to look a lot better, aren't they? So mm. I think we've been a bit mean. It is a different era, but Schofield and Hanley are perfect examples of players who came over to Australia and showed us they could do it. And now we're in an era where it's just assumed if 
you are a great player in England, you've got to come over and test yourself in the NRL. And over the 10 or 15 years that we've seen that happening more regularly, we have seen players dominate. So I think Australian fans will respect the talents of English players when we get to see them shine at the top level. Well, I'll ask you this then. For example, a guy like Elliot Whitehead, a great English import that's done really well in Australia, if he could come over here in the World Cup Challenge playing for Halifax, he's not going to look that great, is he? No. So, it's, I don't know. But I'm with you as well. I never saw Robbie Paul do much from mm. my own eyes. I know for a fact he carves up in Super League. So Yeah. It's like the Wally Lewis thing. If we're not going to get to see you every week, when we do get to see you, you need to stand out and you need to dominate and make us hate you. And there weren't too many English players in this era capable of doing that. But let's turn to Bradford's opponents in that game, Auckland. So this was another problem with the World Club Challenge. Yes, it was a close game, but as I said, Auckland played the second half a man down. But furthermore, Auckland at this point were tethered to the bottom of the Super League ladder. Bradford were runaway leaders in England. So that matchup of your worst team easily beating the best team in the other competition, credibility problems. <laughs> Definitely. But Auckland were a team that if they were decided to put it together on the day, it could beat anybody. So. <laughs> yeah, and it was really in the World Club Challenge that they did that more than any other area over 1997. So they followed that game with a win over St. Helens, who were another one of the Super League leaders, beating St. Helens 42-14. to 14. That's a worry. St. Helens 5'8", Tommy Martin, after that game said, if Auckland are coming last in the Australian competition, I'd hate to see the Canberras and Cronullas. <laughs> it's good to see an honest quote, though. You know? <laughs> 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 someone. Oh, how do you feel about this as an honest quote, which I don't need to tell you that was from Super League magazine. In reality, <laughs> Saints were always going to struggle to win this one. They had seven regular first graders out after a horrifying spate of injuries. It seemed every game could be put down to this injury crisis sweeping <laughs> through England. <laughs> the Simply Magazine is really a piece of work. <laughs> so St. Helens also played Cronulla in the World Club Challenge, and I like this quote from Richie Barnett. We could tell from talking to their players after the games that it was a real eye-opener for them to see all the Australasian teams played like this. They said they just can't compete with the way our guys play an aggressive style for 80 minutes. It's funny looking back on it now that they were just out of part-time training, you know, a couple of years professional pretty much, and then we're looking back on it like they were unbeatable robots. You know? mm, yeah. Well, I mean, they were saying the same thing after the Invincibles in 82. So, yeah, yeah. But again, Super League magazine talking about St. Helens, saying St. Helens Challenge Cup winning performance should be a wake-up call for Australian clubs. <laughs> Simon Gillies will be hitting the snooze button, I think. <laughs> so someone else who had the snooze button going was Graham Murray. So his Mariners were preparing to head over to France for their first game, and he thought that he'd really get the team up for it. So this was Murray's quote about facing Paris. I've got a video of a game Paris played against Oldham a few weeks back. So we'll be looking at that on the two-hour bus trip from Newcastle to Sydney Airport. I won't be stopping and starting it, but it'll be a chance to have a look at them. <laughs> so you're on this 50-foot coach, right, with a little 34-centimeter TV down the front. I'm not going to stop and start it. But we'll, <laughs> but make sure you get across this uh, style of play too. <laughs> Hilarious. And that was enough for the Mariners, who had an easy victory over Paris before going on to beat Castleford 42 to 14 and Sheffield 40 to 4. So making the most of their fairly favorable draw in the World Club Challenge. So by the end of the first three weeks of the tournament, it was not looking good for England. There was some resistance with the performances of the Perth Reds, who were in England and lost two of their three games. They were unconvincing in their first win against Castleford, winning 24 points to 16, then losing to Sheffield and then shut out by Paris, who beat them 24-0. These two Perth losses were the only losses on English soil in that first segment of the competition. So 
England went 2-13 at home and Wigan's victory, the only win in Australia. So in that first round, it was uh, one win and 14 losses in Australia. 2-13 in England, that's unacceptable. Yeah. And considering they were the only team who lost, this raised a lot of speculation about Perth's future, that with the likely reunification of the game in 1998, Perth were an easy cull given how they were going on and off the field. I like this in the Rugby League Week. It's not often that someone writes his own death warrant while wearing Sonny's Hawaiian holiday shirt and camera. (laughs) And you might think it's silly that on-field results could be said to have such a bearing on a team surviving or not, but really the on-field stuff was just the public face of what was becoming an all-round disaster in Perth. I actually put the Perth planning up there with the World Club Challenge planning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's on par. And this is something that can't be blamed on Super League. The foundations of Perth's demise were laid by the ARL with how the club was set up. There was just not enough thought given to the sustainability of the club. But those Perth losses were really the only glimmer of hope for English clubs. And you couldn't even say that it was a glimmer of hope for Super League administration. The tournament was a disaster. There was no other way to put it. And it was time to go into damage control. The first thing Super League did was to try to make out that it was still salvageable. Give it time. Uh, John Rebo said after the first weekend, it's too early to say what the future holds, especially that it won't happen again. To be fair, we'll have to wait and see after three weeks. If the results are totally lopsided, we have a problem, but we have to give it time. They gave it time and found out that they had a problem. And <laughs> Poor Rebo. I honestly feel sorry for him at times like this. This might be my favorite piece of Rebo speak in this chapter. <laughs> it would be terribly unfair to be critical after just a few matches. As the competition unfolds, I think you will find it to be a very, very good concept. <laughs> a little bit Trumpian in some of his um, tire pumping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think with Rebo, it's just willing things into existence with his bravado, which didn't work out well for him at all over the course of Super League. That was the genesis of the fake it to you, make it culture. Yeah, yeah. And as we all know, uh, long-term fake it to you, make it is not a successful strategy. Yeah. (laughs) Like, do you you think Rupert Murdoch is in the boardroom going, fake it till we make it, boys? But he's probably there going, um, if you don't make budget, I'm going to put you in front of a firing squad so everyone's there faking it till they make it. <laughs> <laughs> so English representatives were mortified by the results. Andy Gregory saying he was embarrassed and ashamed. John Penry at Halifax saying it's shameful for British Rugby League and the Halifax Club. I liked that there was some compassion shown from some members of the ARL contingency, which I really appreciated. So Brian Smith said, it's just a different standard over there. They don't play with the pace and intensity that we do here. The English game was very kind to me while I was over there, so I'm not going to kick it or the individuals involved. But the fact is they're not used to performing at this level. Honestly, Brian Smith's a really classy guy and his comments throughout this whole thing have been intelligent and you know, measured and he shows restraint. He's not like a typical league man and he's unfairly maligned uh, as a bloke for mine. It really, really annoys me the reputation that Brian Smith seems to hold in the game. Like you'll see it online, people like bagging out Brian Smith and saying, you know, oh yeah, you know, you end up with Brian Smith as a coach. Like he was a really good coach and a really smart rugby league brain. You can see it all the way through our series. Anytime he's been quoted, and he's someone who's always carried himself with humour and affability. Like, I really like Brian Smith. Yeah, I mean, that quote says it all. Mal Reilly as well, obviously an English legend and their recent coach, said, I really don't want to get involved in any criticism of the game at all. It boils down to the infrastructure of the game, and that's where I believe Australia is superior. So the results didn't surprise me. Just come out and say it. I mean, a minute percentage of the best athletes in England play rugby league. The rest of them are playing soccer. So, I mean, that's why there's a difference. Yeah. So it really shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone. And I appreciate the magnanimity of Reilly and Smith to not dig in and talk about how bad they were. That being said, we've spoken a lot about the 
mental struggles of Ken Arthurson at this time. So I can forgive him some of his comments about the World Club Challenge, but they're quite scathing. So I'm just going to read them out. Uh, This was his comment on the $200 million that News Limited paid to the English Rugby League. He called it the biggest con job ever perpetrated on an Australian company. Imagine paying $200 million for that lot. If the English League is worth $200 million, the Australian game must be worth $2 billion. And he went on to talk about the tournament as a whole and where it put English Rugby League. He said, The ruins of the English game are laid at Lindsay's feet. It's now obvious for all to see that his legacy to the game is nothing short of bloody disgraceful. It's now <laughs> obvious that the game is at its lowest ebb it's ever been in England. In some ways, I suppose I should be happy to see Australian teams winning. But I'm not happy. I'm sad and angry at what's happened over there. He's playing the man again, Arco. Yeah. Not playing the uh, ball. <laughs> yeah, that's such a good way of putting it. I think 1997, Arco was playing the man all year. It was like once he got removed from the game and had nothing left but the ability to provide sound bites to the press, he went in hard. Well, again, it's that lack of awareness, though, because he only ever watched like probably the Challenge Cup final once a yeah. year and then on the Kangaroo Tour games whenever we were over there. It didn't give us flying F about English Rugby League until Super League bought it. Exactly, and that was brought up by Tony Curry at the London Broncos. On Arco's comments, he said, Great Britain haven't won a test series against Australia for 20 years. Super League has only been in control of the English game for the last two. What was the ARL doing for the English game? Nothing. Again, I'll forgive it from Arco because of the position he was in at this point. Less forgiving of Ray Hadley. This first statement is okay. The damage done to the game by the World Club Challenge is reprehensible. Someone should be culpable. I think that's a very fair statement that there needs to be accountability for sleepwalking into this debacle. Sleep marching. Yeah. (laughs) But (laughs) this statement made me laugh. Perth versus Paris. Fair dinkum. It even sounds like a wank. The only thing that makes it sound all right is having Paris in it. It sounds great. That's what we were promised by Super League. This is exactly what we would like there to be in terms of rugby league around the world. The problem is we were nowhere near being able to deliver on that. So the ARL and other media types could deliver a lot of criticism that Super League could withstand. But the death knell came from Adam Hawes in the Rugby League Week, who wrote, many perceive the World Club Challenge to be a Mickey Mouse competition. (laughs) Once it's uttered, it is going to be in the psyche forever. (laughs) It's like the Ghostbusters when they released the ghost from that captain. (laughs) When Mickey Mouse is released. Yeah, there's no bottling that once it's free. So Super League, as I said, we're in damage control. So a lot of positive spin came out of it. Firstly, in the early days of the tournament, it was about grossly overhyping that Wigan result. Super League magazine (laughs) after that win wrote, hold on to your hats. Maybe it's not going to be one-way traffic after all. The critics were out in their hundreds after the first few matches, but the tune is changing. Wigan and Bradford have shown they will be competitive in the Visa Cup. That's got to be up there with the uh, Tri-Series most memorable moments in yeah. <laughs> really history. Graham Lowe doubled down. The critics loaded the guns too early. And last Monday night in both Australia and England, the Brits showed they still have something to offer the international game. God. Uh, this is a section I've titled, If You Squint, The Games Are Actually Close, which was, <laughs> a, 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 was another. <laughs> so of Auckland's defeat of St. Helens, Graham Lowe had this to say, The Auckland result always required closer analysis. I watched it on Fox Sports and Auckland turned in one of the best team performances of the year. With a team full of internationals, the Warriors had to click sooner or later and was poor old Saints who bore the brunt. Bob Lindner, who was coaching Oldham, he had this to say, The games are not that far apart, honestly. You know, he'd had (laughs) experience coaching in England, so he's in a good position to make such a claim. Uh, the issue is that his side had just been thrashed 54 to 16 by the Cowboys. Once you put honestly at the end of it, it's dishonest. <laughs> Peter Ryan at the Broncos was talking about his upcoming match against Halifax, and he said, we have to do what Canberra did against Halifax. But you would have to say the odds are against another score like that. <laughs> so that 70 to 6 score uh, that Canberra managed to achieve, Brisbane won 76 nil. <laughs> the odds. But Peter Ryan wasn't taking anything for granted. He said, I spoke to some of the London blokes after our first round match 
And they told me the Halifax guys were absolute monsters. They've got an enormous pack. Of St. Helens, their coach and your close family friend, Sean McRae, (laughs) (laughs) said that he thought it would take the first round for us to evaluate just how good these sides are. So once we get these thrashings out of the way, we'll have had a really good look at the Australian teams and we'll be better prepared. The spin is um, cringeworthy, but I really don't know what else they're going to say. Yeah, you've got to say something, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think there was a way for Morris Lindsay to dampen this slightly, though. He said, despite the knockers and despite the talk of taking an all-Australian final offshore, there's still every chance of a British side going all the way. There's a chance of everything happening. <laughs> But I think by this point, most Super League spokesmen had come around to the idea that the competition was only heading in one direction. So let's try to find our positives elsewhere. And the common sentiment was that this was going to ultimately reap benefits. So John Rebo's line was, we knew there would be some mismatches, but the only way the game over here can improve is if they regularly pit themselves against an Australian opposition. People can stick their heads in the sand and say they want to keep playing their competitions between suburbs, but trends in world sport indicate we'll be overtaken if we do that. So a sentiment not without truth, but I'm just going to read a couple of other quotes to illustrate some flaws in this line of thinking. Uh, Mal Menenga, the only way teams in England are going to get better is if they play against the Australian teams. Tony Curry, if they want to make rugby league an international game, this is the way it has to be done. And Graham Lowe in support of Tony Curry. I subscribe to the point of view of Tony Curry when he says that if we want to improve international rugby league, this is the only way to go about it. I love the repeat of that phrase, the only way. Like, really? This was the only way. Tim Steen thought that it was good because his quote, by playing the English every year in a format that includes all clubs, the English game will accelerate. Instead of a reminder every four years, it will come every year. It's like, good, once a year we get reminded that we suck. (laughs) I know that reminder is actually a good idea. (laughs) Then there was some comparison with some other thrashings in rugby league and thrashings outside of rugby league. So this may be the only time I agree with Graham Lowe in this chapter, but he had this to say. Last Saturday night, the All Blacks walloped Fiji 71-5. to I can remember a couple of years ago when the Wallabies put 80 points on Western Samoa and they were tests, not international club matches, yet we didn't hear a hue and cry about how bad these results were for the game of rugby union. We've just been trashing Graham Lowe for two episodes, right? And I've been cringing at his comments, but hearing him sink the slipper on union and passing the buck warms the heart. Yeah, I agree with him about the way we keep getting told by union fans that we're this little irrelevant domestic game and and they're playing around the world. And it's like, yeah, to this day, we're still seeing those huge scorelines being mounted against any of the non, you know, six or eight countries that played at any professional level. Believe me, I was throwing around a few statistics myself about union in those eras. (laughs) But let's keep it in-house. Kevin Neal, talking about it, said, Just four years ago, Canberra beat Parramatta 68-0. It forced them to go away and have a good look at themselves. And now they've got a very, very good football team. In 1990, we beat A60-4, and they went back and took stock. They got a new coach, new players. And how are these situations in any way comparable? (laughs) Parramatta were rubbish until the Super League war came along. They got all these Super League refugees, spent $6 million dollars, on player payments. East needed Nick Colitis to come in and bring Freddie and Gus with him. And But, I mean, I made the point earlier that floggings happen in the NRL too. doesn't make him good. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't yeah, make it yeah. a fun thing to happen. No. <laughs> uh, and Tim Sheen said, I wonder whether these people were saying the same thing when the ARL's Australian team thrashed that Fijian team made up from a couple of villages, something like 80 nil last season. What did the Sydney Morning Radio host who has been particularly outspoken on the challenge say? Who cares? And that's a reasonable point, except for the fact that these critics were criticising the Fiji game. Everyone knew it was Mickey Mouse. But um, it doesn't change the point that it's happening to your competition right now, not in the past somewhere else. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So let's address that, not go on with this whataboutism. And... (laughs) I've labelled this section miscellaneous lunacy. And again, (laughs) 
the first statement comes from Graham Lowe. <laughs> that could have been an alternate title for the competition. <laughs> if the competition can bear the cost, I think the format is outstanding. Sooner rather than later, other English clubs will lift to Wigan's level and we'll have an exciting competition on our hands. So, okay, let's lay out $6 million a year in the hope that one day the competition will be exciting. I'll tell you one thing rugby league is obsessed with is loss leaders. Yeah. The concept of, um, look, it's going to lose money for um, 10 years, but it might break even one day. It's like it's not Amazon, mate. It's no. not going to turn it around. Like, it's a sinkhole. <laughs> um, Graham Bicknell in Super League magazine. A stiff competition, but up there with my favorite quotes from this chapter. The knockers have predictably come out of the woodwork saying the experiment was a failure. But was it? <laughs> There's spin and then there's denial. (laughs) Some of the other uh, reasons given for why it was a good idea was that Shane Richardson arguing that a lot of good has come out of it. They've actually solved jet lag as a problem. He said, it's proven we can hold an international competition without the old fears of flying to the other side of the world and playing a few days later. We employed the (laughs) services of a scientist to help us overcome our jet lag (laughs) and it works. It can be done. That is one of the funniest rugby league quotes. Now, Shane Richardson <laughs> was the 90s version of Rebo with the finance speak. He was like management speak. Yeah, think, yeah. It's like, who are these rugby league plane flying scientists? Do you think the best minds were at work at that, trying to solve jet lag yeah. for uh, <laughs> Simon Gillies? Like. Uh, what was the advice beyond what you yeah, do yeah. is, right, you know, stay up until it's nighttime in England. Then go to bed. <laughs> Drink some water, not 50 schooners. <laughs> and um, put a compression sock on, you know, like, Jesus. Uh, Jim Maher in the Rugby League Week. I had to double check this wasn't a Super League magazine quote. He said, watching the Poms has been fun. A brief dose of amateurish innocence is appealing after a solid diet of structured efficiency. <laughs> Well, I mean, that was a backhander of all time, but I actually agree with the sentiment. Watching Super League is fun because they play with abandon. Yeah. But, I mean, insulting. <laughs> I think the operative word in Jim Ma's statement there is a brief dose. <laughs> you don't want the word amateurish in your compliment. <laughs> Mel Meninga was more straightforward and to the point. When he was asked about the credibility of the World Club Challenge, he said, I'm sick of that crap. Don't criticize it. And then goes on to say, I'm sick and tired of the media coming back at us all the time and saying the competition is crap because of the opposition and the high scores. Let's be positive. We're out there playing the World Club Challenge. It's a great new concept. (laughs) That's like denial to you, make it. Yeah. (laughs) And so there was a lot of talk among certain Super League people, including Mal Meninga, that it was actually a form of talking down the game and the media were contributing to the negativity around the competition. Menenga said, we're struggling for crowds because of the way the media are reacting to World Club Challenge. (laughs) They've always underestimated the intelligence of the fan since 1908. I think throughout this series, we've gone back and forth between mocking fans and lauding them for their insight. And I think fans are a mixed bag, but one thing fans know is Mickey Mouse. And once they know that it's Mickey Mouse, they're not going to turn up. And why should they? No, exactly. Present them bullshit, tell them it's ice cream, and they're going to go, well, it doesn't taste like ice cream. Yeah. (laughs) And in England, Shane Richardson gave the media there a dressing down about their coverage of the World Club Challenge and said, I can't understand people who see anything but positives from this competition. Well, if I know English tabloid journalism from the 90s, I'm sure they took that on board. Yeah. I love this. This was a UK rugby league journalist, Brian Ellis. This was his response to the criticism from Richardson. If reporting a 76-0 win by Brisbane over Halifax is talking the game down, then perhaps Mr. Richardson should have a word with the Australian players to keep the scorelines respectable. The media are not employed by the rugby league to promote the game at all costs. They are employed by newspapers, TV and radio stations to provide honest and accurate reporting. What about Super League magazine? <laughs> um, why didn't Shane Richardson get some scientists in to deal with the journalists? Yeah. <laughs> but I think that confusion about the role of the media 
remains to this day. Anytime there's a negative story, you get players coming out and talking about journalists talking down the game. And it's the journalist's responsibility isn't to promote rugby league. It's to report on rugby league. Well, they've also got the responsibility to report factually and honestly, but they don't do that. So, I mean, yeah, and that's a bigger issue. But if it wasn't the media's fault, who else could it be? Uh, maybe the referees, regular punching bags. Andy Gregory had this to say I'm not whinging, I promise. And I'm not making excuses, but I have to say there's a problem with the play the ball. Back home, we played a totally different game to the one played out here. In Adelaide, we were absolutely crucified. I rate Carrod Walters as one of the best dummy half runners in the game. But I've watched the tape of that match since, and I spotted at least eight occasions where he would have been penalised in England. I think what they should have done was actually um, rigged it a little bit by telling the refs to ref in an English style. To yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because definitely that sentiment was not just Annie Gregory. Barry McDermott at Leeds said the same thing. And Greg McCallum, who was refereeing in England, said, as far as I'm concerned, most play the balls in Australia are illegal. They'll be penalised if they do it that way over here, I can assure you of that. So I think that might have been a way of ever so slightly putting their hands on the scales. But it's the age-old rugby league coach adage where they'll tell them before the competition how it's going to be refed, and then they'll ignore that and play the old way and then complain about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I have to assume Graham Bradley was taking the piss with this statement. So after Bradford were beaten 64-16 to by Auckland, Bradley said, it was the ref. He never gave us a fair go. <laughs> I hope that's serious. <laughs> so after this first round of matches, there was a lot of talk about the long-term viability of the competition. And despite Super League's protestations that they were committed to the concept and the format and it would definitely go ahead in 1998, the reality was quite different. So. In Rugby League Week, after the first weekend of matches, Sherlock wrote, the concept is already a dinosaur, bound for certain extinction in its current form. That is not what you want to hear one weekend into your competition's existence. You're already a dinosaur. It's funny because I mentioned earlier that the scores weren't that bad in week one. It was no. Like the play must have been really bad. Yeah. By the end of the second weekend, Chris Anderson gave away to the press that the competition would change. He said... We haven't heard anything official, but I think the top four clubs from both countries will play off. That's what I've heard anyway. Don't quote me. Tell them Simon Gillies said it. <laughs> he wouldn't know who's playing. <laughs> but regardless, they were stuck with this in 1997. So after that first three weeks of the tournament, Peter Jackson in Super League magazine wrote, I'm relieved to be getting back to the Telstra Cup after three weeks of lopsided results in the World Club Challenge, which... Relief is not the emotion you want when your $6 million transcontinental <laughs> tournament adjourns. Relief. I'm so relieved to get back to this half-assed um, thrown-together domestic comp. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll give the last word in this part of the chapter to Peter Falingos. When you've lost Falingos, you know that the tournament has no chance of surviving. This was Falingos in the Daily Telegraph. Unfortunately, Super League has no alternative but to play out the series. <laughs> and that is the state of where we leave the competition at this point. So we're three weeks in. We've seen a 27-3 to 3 imbalance in the competition with Australian clubs dominating everywhere. And we go back to Super League. But when we come back for our... Concluding part of this chapter, we will see how the tournament went from there. We'll look at the winners. We'll look at the aftermath. And again, were you at any matches? Do you have any memories? Please send them through. Um, but thank you for listening to this one. Well, I want to call out to any English listeners, any Castleford fans that flew out here for the Mariners because there was a whole bunch of them making mm. a lot of noise, and I loved that match. It's a great memory. Yeah. All 3,001 of us. But um, yeah. if anyone's got any Super League memories, uh, please send them through. And more importantly from our English listeners, don't just tell me my accent is crap. How about some constructive criticism? Give me something to go off. The only way Michael's going to get better is if he competes against English accents. <laughs> All right, yeah, so maybe part three, I'll do the whole uh, episode in my Yorkshire accent. <laughs> so you can look forward to that and much more in our third and final part, and we will speak to you soon.
Toodaloo. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.